Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast. Are you curious about how the mempool is going to evolve and what impact that will have on Bitcoin? Today, I speak with Wiz and Simon of the mempool.space project, a really great Bitcoin visualizer, and it's great for targeting the fees that you're going to use. So we talk about how the project got started, what the impact of it will be in terms of Bitcoin and the multi-layer ecosystem that we're moving towards. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the fastest way to go from zero to Bitcoin. They've got easy sign up, it's really cheap, there's no altcoins, and it is available in all states in the US. A common way people get started is establishing their initial position with a one-time buy, and then start dollar cost averaging with automatic recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin was built to do just this. You can create a recurring purchase plan like $100 a week or $20 a day, and you can also make one-time buys. Swan supports bank wires and ACH transfers. Swan is the best place to send your friends and family when they are ready to start buying Bitcoin. There is a specific focus on self-custody and learning the important aspects of Bitcoin. So send them to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera and Swan will drop $10 of free Bitcoin into their account when they become a member. That's swanbitcoin.com slash Levera. Are you thinking about your Bitcoin security? Well, consider multi-signature with Unchained, building Bitcoin native financial services and providing services like multi-signature vaults designed for ultra-secure long-term storage with no setup or storage fees if you build them on your own. Now, if you want guidance, they offer a concierge onboarding package and that's available both for individuals and for businesses. So they will send you some hardware wallets. They'll teach you about multi-signature. They'll do calls with you while you initialize and set up the hardware wallets and the vault. And in doing so, you will then feel a lot more comfortable about how to use multi-signature because Unchained Capital makes it really easy for you. Unchained also offers an OTC service and it's also a great choice if you're looking for self-directed Bitcoin retirement accounts. So move your personal or your corporate treasury to a Bitcoin standard. Go and check out unchained-capital.com. Take a look at cyphersafe.io, producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you've got a Bitcoin hardware wallet, don't just rely on that piece of paper that you get with it. Slowly increase and improve your level of security and safety here by using a metal backup seed that is fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper-evident. The Cypher Wheel is compact, it comes in a wheel shape, and you can get a padlock tamper evidence seal so you know if it's been opened. So you slide in the tiles to back up the words on your seed product. Make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Levera for a discount. Wiz and Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us on. So Wiz, I think my listeners are already familiar with you, but uh, let's hear from you, Simon. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, I grew up in Sweden. I worked there as a software developer. And but about four years ago, I decided to leave my day job and pursue a more nomadic lifestyle. So for the past like four years, yeah, I've been mostly like traveling and moving and living in different places around the world. And uh, also got the time to really deep dive deeply into the bitcoin space and i i um i realized i wanted to like contribute something to the space and that's why i now been now i'm working on the mempool project full-time yeah that's really cool and i think um the whole bitcoin nomad idea is something that's picking up a bit more steam as well uh that there are more people who are talking about that as an idea and uh it's become i guess more viable for people as well so that's that's a pretty cool area 
Um, and uh, Wiz, maybe just give a bit of an overview on yourself just for listeners who might not have heard you before. Yeah, sure. I'm a full-time Bitcoiner, originally from Hawaii. Um, quit school really young to work at an ISP and stay home and chat with my friends on IRC. And, you know, like 20 years later, I'm still doing the same thing, just talk to my friends on the internet and uh, i still run my own isp now with my own servers and i run like um, a bunch of bitcoin nodes for bisc and uh, liquid now like even one of the bitcoin dns seeds um i'm also publishing the bitcoin standards uh japanese edition coming out soon and a few other random bitcoin projects yeah that's awesome man so uh for listeners that's uh, basically, Wiz is running a lot of different operational infrastructure there in relation to different projects. So he's involved with BISC, which is a well-known uh, like peer-to-peer trading platform for people who want to trade Bitcoin. And he's also becoming a Bitcoin DNS seed. So we might get into that a bit later if we get some time. Um, but uh, for, for now, let's talk a little bit about the project, mempool.space. So um, just for listeners who aren't familiar, this is a great website to go and basically visualize the blockchain uh, and see what's going on with it. So uh, perhaps, Simon, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got started on this? Yeah, I think, I guess it, you can you can start like from 2017 when when we it all became clear that the, the, the blockchain and the fees are not going to be uh, for free anymore. I, uh, and people wasn't really, they didn't, aren't really knowledgeable on how it actually works. They, they make transactions, but they just, get stuck but they don't really understand why and so that's why i i come up with like uh, this idea of building like a the original idea was like visualizing the blockchain seeing the blocks coming in and uh seeing how transactions getting processed by the mem- by the blockchain basically so you, you can actually for the first time visualize how it actually looks like because yeah people didn't have anything to relate to and it's come to that. So, uh, so I I coded the first version of the project in late 2018, and there was like a basic version with uh, just transaction tracking and like the, this whole basic visualization of the blockchain. And then, like six months later, Wiz contacted me, saw the project, he offered me to like host the project, and he persuaded me to you have to open source this man. And I released the code on GitHub, made it all open source. And uh, yeah, we, we took it from there and then we just decided to step it up. Yeah. So Wiz, let's hear from your side. Tell us how you found out about this project and how you got started with it. Right. Yeah. Like when, uh, like what Simon said, um, <clears throat> I saw his uh, mempool visualizer website and I thought it was really cool. And um, since I run a lot of Bitcoin nodes for various projects, I wanted to, you know, just monitor my own mempool of my own bitcoin nodes and so i basically said you know let's partner up on this project let's make it into a a legit open source project and um he was you know instantly very positive and totally agreed to um to do it so like within a few days of of talking like we you know made the github project and put together like you know basic installation instructions and screenshots and documentation and uh we we launched it it was uh, Mempool V1. That was that was pretty cool when we first launched it. Now, one thing that's, I think, important to point out is up until this point, most block explorers were more about looking at historical transactions. And there wasn't as much of a focus on this idea of thinking about the Mempool, right? So that's probably one important differentiator here, correct? Yeah, I guess the um, the Mempool was never really relevant before 2017 or, or 2018. 
the uh, there was that that so-called block size debate where you know later we found that it was actually uh, Bitmain doing this covert ASIC boost stuff and spamming the mempool with high fee transactions and all these other scandalous things we heard about. But for whatever reason, the mempool was just not relevant. It never got full before that uh, 2017 2018 bull market run. And uh, Simon's very innovative idea of visualizing the mempool as projected blocks was uh, was really cool. That was really unique. And um, there was nothing like it ever since. Right. And I think perhaps that's a really good, I mean, you're probably the right person to ask on this as well, because you're, you're a bit more of a, a Bitcoin OG yourself. Um, but I think for listeners who maybe you're a little bit newer to the Bitcoin world in the earlier days, because there were so many less people using Bitcoin in those days, it was much faster and easier to just kind of get your transactions through. Whereas you know, at in that kind of 2016 and 2017 and era, it started to become more like, hey, there's actually congestion here. Now we actually need to start thinking about fees on the blockchain. Um, so perhaps, Wiz, do you want to maybe give us a bit of context there in terms of what's happened with fees, uh, transaction fees to use Bitcoin over the years? I guess if you go back to the early days, uh, I remember when I first started in like 2013 or so, you could actually do a zero fee transaction. Um, and around that time, that's when they realized that that was a bad idea um, for spamming or, or just denial of service attacks or whatever and added a minimum fee. And I think it was just hard coded at like 0.001 Bitcoin per transaction. Um, regard, regardless, <laughs> the value was a lot lower then, right? <laughs> yes, it was a lot cheaper and it was a lot, um, you know, it didn't matter how big the transaction was. And then after that, they changed to this um, Satoshi's per byte. And then later, I think Satoshi's per virtual byte when SegWit came along and you have weight units and all these fancy things now. But uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting like um, almost, I guess, eight or nine years now of how the fee market's been slowly developing in the, uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem. And now we're kind of transitioning to this period where the mempool is always going to be congested and you always have to bid against other transactions for the getting included into the next block. And Simon, anything to add there just on the, the fee market or the block space market dynamics over the years? Um, no, I, I basically joined the Bitcoin space in 2017. So it was already already congested and stuff. But I, I guess I didn't find any good way of see what's happening with my transaction. And uh, so, so we are like in this huge transition right now. We are, we're going to transition to a multi-layer Bitcoin ecosystem. And that's what the vision of the mempool space project is about now. <clears throat> We're not just supporting supporting the base layer, but we need to support all the other layers and help people in this transition, help people find the right fee, um, help people make an optimized fee, optimized transactions. We I focus a lot on that. Yeah. And so I think this is one of those things where in the earlier days when everything was still viable on chain, people didn't have to think about these things. So they would do small transactions on chain. But now we actually have to start thinking a little bit more deeply about what Bitcoin is and what it is best suited for. And, you know, if you, you know, if listeners check out some of the episodes with someone like VJ Boyapati, he, he would explain to something like, hey, it's actually, you know, we need to think of it more like it's settlement layer or Bitcoin layer one is more like settlement layer. And so the smaller transactions will happen in other layers. So uh, perhaps you guys want to expand on that kind of idea and tell us a little bit about, you know, what you think is going to, what we what think that's going to look like. Yeah, to, to me now, the, the block space is extremely scarce and people don't really realize like if for example if you run a bitcoin node yourself you you'll start to realize that you need to keep a copy of every transaction that ever occurred like forever 
and store it on your hard drive. So that is what you're paying for when you're making a transaction. And if you look at it that way, like a five bucks isn't that much, actually. You're paying to be included and secured and stored in the world's most uh, distributed and secure ledger. So when when people, when, and that is going to be, so it's going to be a, a fee market and uh, all the, like, I guess I hopefully, I hope that the coffee payments are already priced out of Bitcoin because I don't see the reason why we should store all the people's coffee payments like on all the nodes around the world it doesn't make any sense right so those could <laughs> yeah. be stored on lightning for example or be transacted over lightning and and we are just in this huge transition period when we have a lot of infrastructure that's not upgraded we have a lot of use of non-segwit we have a lot of transactions that doesn't support fee bumping and lightning is uh it, really needs to be activated implemented on like exchanges and stuff so it's going to be about like a very rough period like the coming years i believe that the transaction fees are going to go up and down be very volatile so i think the the tool we're building is like helping people really navigate this transition and this volatility that's that's happening yeah if you look at any project that was developed past um, five or six years in uh, the bitcoin ecosystem a lot of them made this false assumption that Bitcoin transactions would always be cheap, <clears throat> which in hindsight is, is kind of silly because I think all Bitcoiners now understand why Bitcoin is valuable, right? It, it's the first true form of digital scarcity. But you know, if, Bit, if BTC is valuable because there's only 21 million BTC, well, then um, the space in the Bitcoin's blockchain, which also has a very finite limitation, is also going to become very valuable. So you know, on one side, you have this increasing demand for users who want to create new Bitcoin transactions. But more importantly, if everyone understands that number is going to go up and Bitcoin transaction fees are denominated in Bitcoin, then those two numbers kind of multiply each other. The, uh, the price in Satoshi's per byte of your transactions will go up and the price of um, dollars uh, for, for Bitcoin will go up. So Bitcoin transactions, we've already seen it go up like 100x uh, since I've been around since, uh, I mean, it was like five cents to do a Bitcoin transaction uh, a few years back. And now it's like $5 to do a Bitcoin transaction. Probably in another, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, it could be like $500 to do a Bitcoin transaction, depending on how, how, um, the uh, how certain apps and use cases get optimized or don't get optimized. Um, you know, take take BISC for example. They um, every BISC trade is like four on-chain transactions, and until very recently, it wasn't even using Segwit. It was very unoptimized. And so, if you want to buy a hundred dollars of Bitcoin on BISC, you know, you would have had to pay like ten or twenty dollars just in the mining fees. So it already had priced out those hundred-dollar trades. And so, uh, a lot of these apps are are just you know going to have to adapt. They're going to have to change to this. Uh, transition of um, you know where the mempool is just always going to be congested. Fees fee market is is going to become very expensive, and uh, it's in everyone's interest to kind of optimize their transactions, batch all their transactions together, and so that we're not all bidding against each other so aggressively and driving the price up for everyone. Right, and so it's a very complicated topic because there's so many moving pieces or moving parts going on here. So one example is exchanges might start batching their um, the all the withdrawals, and so that may help the fee pressure dramatically as opposed to in the past where they were just doing single <laughs> transactions for each person um, and I guess the I guess the first level thing that people might be thinking is, oh, but hang on, where's and Simon? Why can't I just do one sat per V-byte and then wait for it to get confirmed? Why can't I just do that? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, 
that's a common misconception, right? Is um, that, okay, I have a very low time preference. I don't care when my transaction gets confirmed. So I'll just use the absolute minimum fee of one sat per byte and just wait. Well, the thing about the mempool is that the mempool um, has a default size of 300 megabytes uh, in Bitcoin Core. And so the lowest fee transactions will actually get kicked out of the mempool once it hits 300 megabytes. And so um, this is actually one of the uh, the newer features we're going to be adding to the site. But basically, the other day, I think it was up to four sats per byte. Every, anything below that was getting purged. So yeah, I mean, you just can't... Um, this is like a common misconception. I I, uh, I can see how people, you know, started using Bitcoin sometime in the past five years and they could always get away with doing this. But that uh, just like zero fee transactions are not a thing anymore, one sat per byte transactions are not really going to be a thing anymore. And we're going to see the market very uh, volatile. Paul Catan, my uh, friend, uh, uh, my, my co-founder of Ministry of Nodes, he's famous for his uh, one sat maximalism. Um, but I guess we'll see. So there's a few, um, I guess, pieces to tease apart with this whole one sat conversation. So one example would be, oh, hold, hold on, Wiz. Why can't I just go one sat, but enable this special feature called replace by fee? And so I might lowball at the start and then do an RBF replace by fee, uh, so long as that feature is enabled and, the, and that my wallet supports this feature. Uh, that I could use that. Yeah, that's a good point. You can use RBF um, with a with a cheap fee and then increase it if necessary. And that's a pretty good strategy. But not all wallets and use cases support RBF. For example, if you're sending from one centralized exchange to the other, you know you can't really RBF it or or even uh, CPFP a child pay for parent. And um, there's all there's also this other problem right now where if you want to bump the fee of a transaction using um, CPFP child pays for parent, if your original transaction got purged from the mempool, you can't actually bump the fee for it. Um, I think my friend Gloria right now just got a grant to do this uh, package mempool accept. We'll be able to submit multiple transactions into the mempool at the same time to address this problem. But um, my understanding is that once the, the minimum fee of the mempool has risen to you know above the, the fee rate of your now purge transaction, you can't rebroadcast it even if you're bumping it with a C, with a with another transaction. And so it, you know, and that might be a couple of years until that gets fixed. So there's just a bunch of things that need to get improved um, all over the the infrastructure of of the Bitcoin uh, kind of economy here. Yeah, right. Um, and I guess one other point just while we're here is that the 300 megabyte default, as you mentioned, it's possible for some nodes to manually uh, configure that to be bigger. They might say, okay, I'm going to allocate a one gigabyte or whatever. And I know as well that there are other, for example, there are mining pools that offer this as a service. So I think um, pushtx.com is one example where you can go there, put tell them this transaction and then pay them uh, a fee out out of band, meaning you might pay them with lightning to accelerate one of your transactions such that the next time they come across it, they can try to manually bump it in their own and ensure that it goes into a block. And I guess this is just one example of how the ecosystem might evolve over time. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, a lot of these mining pools, it, it's kind of like a secondary market for uh, space in the Bitcoin blockchain is going to emerge. And um, uh, we're, we're probably going to add this feature on the site at some point. But yeah, I mean, there just needs to be a better way out of band 
demand, like you said, for people who want to manually prioritize a transaction. And, uh, you know, if it, people make mistakes or, for, you know, they can't bump the fee for whatever reason and say the market's moving and the mempool's congested and they really need this transaction to get confirmed, there, you know, there's a market for that. Those people would be willing to pay a fee to have it manually prioritized. And so uh, definitely the future of, of uh, the Bitcoin mempool space market, blockchain space market will um, develop, as you say. And while we're on this topic as well, it's probably also good to talk about fee estimation. So why is this a hard problem? Well, yeah, the biggest problem is that you don't know when the the blocks are gonna arrive it's total random it's it should be like over time it's one block per 10 minutes but if you if you like go to mempool.space and look when the blocks are arriving you, you can get like three blocks in a row within one minute and then it takes an hour for the next block and during all this time the the, the mempool is just getting congested and so you have no clue of knowing like when and also not just that like all the transactions are coming in new transactions are coming in with different various of fees so like all of a sudden you have like big players i know like bitmex for example like on mondays they will on a specific time they will dump a huge amount of transactions in the mempool so it, it's impossible to foresee all this stuff so and so that's why it's also impossible to do fee estimation and most of the traditional uh, fee estimation tools are using like a statistical approach so that you can get a probability like if i use this fee i will have a probability of 95 percent of having it confirmed within 30 minutes or something like that but the the mempool website has a uh, more mempool based fee estimation system which is different like some people love it and some other people maybe don't but it's like up to preference but basically we're looking at how the mempool looks like and show you like what you need right now to get into the next and that is reasonably uh, accurate i mean i know and because the mempool is so volatile you can have one block with a super low fee and then the next block with a high fee so we are very our estimation is more like dynamic fluctuates more than the traditional and we have received a lot of feedback people really liking our approach and uh, have been able to reduce their fees a lot because they are able to see like a snapshot what does the mempool look right now okay i'll put this transaction fee if it gets into the next block if i get lucky within 10 minutes yeah i didn't have to pay that much of a fee yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really good point. When I first started um, working on the BISC project, um, all the BISC nodes were, I think, using Earn.com's fee estimation API. And when it didn't matter, you know, it was okay. But as soon as the mempool started to get congested, like within the past six or eight months, uh, users really got upset because they, the uh, API was so like horribly inaccurate, you know. And that's around the time, uh, and it's also like, like a centralized uh, point of failure for for the BISC network anyway. So it was a really cool use case of the mempool project project to um, have several uh, fee estimation API backends now running by several different BISC contributors and using the real-time mempool data to very accurately tell you, like updated every few seconds, what fee you should use. And that really improved the BISC networks, um, you know, just flow. Because with, with BISC networks, since there's so many on-chain transactions, if, if a transaction gets stuck in the mempool, it would really disrupt some trades. And, um, you know, BISC UX is already kind of clunky because it's 
it's totally dis- decentralized. So you want uh, you want to improve as many things as you can to make it as smooth as possible for um, for people to you know stack stats without a centralized party and and having a decentralized project like the mempool fee estimation was really important. Great. And how would the fee estimation using mempool.space differ from say fee estimation that might be in my Bitcoin wallet? Yeah, like I said, we're using the mempool based fee estimation, and some tools do that. So it's like differ from tool to tool as i think the majority are using like a a more statistical approach and those usually give you a higher fee but uh, yeah you have to see which wallet you're looking at it's like yeah Yeah, it really depends on the wallet implementation right uh even core like bitcoin cores fee estimation i found was not nearly as accurate as um mempool spaces just because of the the way it uses the projected blocks and it takes the medium fee it's a pretty simple algorithm we have in there now and it could still be improved in a lot of ways but it was um it's surprisingly already the best in my experience Great. And so uh, in terms of tools that users are using other than mempool.space, what sort of tools are they using and how would you contrast that with the mempool.space approach? Uh, I guess when it comes to block explorers, um, most of the block explorers out there or the popular ones are not even open source, right? So if you don't want to use like a totally closed source, uh, centralized website, that's probably logging all of your queries and using all kinds of third-party trackers and analytics. Um, um, it's really cool to have uh, an open source tool that you can even just uh, self-host locally and not have to trust anybody, connect it to your own node. So if if, um, if you're looking for tools, even if it's not fee estimation or, or block exploring, just to like be able to know that someone's not logging your data and uh, connect it to your own full node is, is really huge. Um, and if you, if you have a tool like that with a really slick UX and design, um, I, I think you can have the best of both worlds where it's fast and uh, local and self-sovereign. Yeah, so a good example there would be if, let's say, the listener has sent a Bitcoin transaction and they're waiting for that to actually get confirmed. And now in that time, they might be out there copy-pasting the transaction hash into a block explorer. And if they're not using some kind of anonymization technique like Tor or VPN and so on, at that point, they may be doxing certain aspects of, oh, hey, this IP address is interested in this Bitcoin transaction, where if that user is using their own block explorer, uh, then that's where you're saying, as you're saying, that user can reduce the amount of leakage of info because now they're only looking up on their own uh, computer yeah that's why we've been i've been had this focus since the beginning actually that you should be able to run this whole mempool explorer locally on your own node and uh it's just this uh we just recently recently released a latest version right and uh it, since it's a bit different from the original one it took more some more effort to make it adapted to run on a re- uh, regular node but um we just finished that work now so i think we can talk more about that <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think it's the ecosystem is going to have to transition. And so we may see more tension come and that may in, in some way drive the use of lightning. It may drive, unfortunately, we don't want this, but it may drive more use of custodial services uh, and potentially things like sidechains like Liquid. Um, so perhaps, Wiz, do you want to spell out what some of those implications might look like as this ecosystem matures? 
Yeah, I guess it'll be interesting to see how it develops. Um, like the most obvious common use case is something um, like in USA, they have uh, Venmo or Cash App or PayPal, where it's just totally a uh, centralized database. And if you want to send money to your friends, either it's Fiat or Sats, uh, you know, it's just kind of like updating a database entry in essentially what's a bank, a fully custodial thing. And um, up from that a little bit, like you said, you have uh, side chains like Liquid, where you have these kind of IOU tokens that... Um, I think it's pretty cool because on a side chain like Liquid, you can verify that not only how much Bitcoin they're they're holding, um, but also the liabilities. So in other words, you can you can uh, verify all the all the Bitcoin holdings, but also all the um, the IOU token holdings, and you can run the numbers and make sure that they match up. And you can uh, you know very easily see that they're not running like a fractional reserve or anything like this. Uh, the side chains also have cool features like uh, confidential uh, transactions or base layer privacy, you know, like one minute block times, uh, of course, very low fees. And you can also do like some kind of uh, basic smart contract functionality or, or, you know, atomic swaps of other assets like USD, you know, fiat coin assets to to sats and things like that. So there's, there's a bunch of really cool stuff on uh, like liquid that you can't do on other things. And then, you know, on, on the, the most extreme, like the most distributed, you have Lightning, right? Which of course is this layer two payment network. It's fully distributed. There is no blockchain at all. And, um, you know, you, you're just kind of settling on chain every once in a while if you need to. So there's, there's like a full spectrum, uh, you know, sliding scale of centralization to decentralization to being fully distributed in this uh, layer two ecosystem, and they all kind of have their trade offs in terms of uh, security and privacy and freedom and censorship resistance and verifiability, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, so, for listeners interested in uh, more in depth around Liquid, check out my earlier episode with Alan Pishkatella from uh, the Blockstream team. And he explains it kind of like a fancy multi sig bank, if you will, um, but different trade offs, obviously. So, you know, have a listen to that as well. Um, but I guess, uh, Wiz and Simon, do you have any comments there around how Mempool? dot space is going to help enable the user be a functioning you know member in this coin ecosystem across the different layers well we started with uh, just supporting the bitcoin blockchain right and then we added support for liquid and uh, i think the next big project for this year is going to be adding like a lightning explorer and then we can like connect everything together so we already support this like if you make like a liquid transaction and you do a peg out to bitcoin then you can just click a, a link and you get the redirected to the Bitcoin transaction where it actually got settled. So it all, it's all interconnected in like the same multi-layer uh, ecosystem like this. Very cool. Um, and so maybe, uh, t- Wiz, could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the operations of the website and you know, keeping it running as a, as a community resource? Yeah, it's um, it's pretty impressive how uh, popular the site has gotten over the past uh, year or so since we started supporting like full block explorer functionality, and especially most recently as the mempool um, has just been constantly congested over the past month or two. Now we're now we're seeing like over fifty thousand daily active users, and um, you know so a lot of uh, uh, like wallet apps or exchange networks like BISC or, or many others. Um, not only are you know, integrating with our APIs or linking to our block explorer 
um, so that users can easily look up their transaction and, and see where it is in the mempool. But they're they're actually setting us as like the default block explorer, which is really humbling. Um, I think Phoenix Wallet by Async, which is this really really slick uh, Lightning wallet. I was very surprised to you know check out the wallet and click on a transaction and have it open on mempool space. And uh, you know it's just so heartwarming to see the community really embrace the mempool project and integrate with it so much. But operationally, like um, you know we we've got a bunch of uh, donations. Uh, from community sponsors and we use those funds to purchase a bunch more servers. Uh, we're actually in the process of um, setting up the mempool to be its own ISP. Right now it's hosted on my ISP. So it's self-hosted by me right now, but we want mempool to be, you know, totally self-hosted. So uh, once mempool becomes its own ISP, that'll be really cool. Any, anyone is um, welcome to set up their own mempool node as well. If you uh, want to take some, uh, if you if you don't want to route your your request to our servers, right? I mean, we, of course we operate the, the service like freely for the community, especially over Tor, but uh, it's always best to run your own interest uh, instance. So you don't need to trust us. Back to the show in a moment. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring comprehensive insurance coverage for client assets. Much of what passes as insurance today isn't purchased for the sake of protection, but for pure marketing reasons. Knox believes insurance should exist to make fund recovery possible. No sharing coverage between customers. Knox takes a unique approach when it comes to purchasing insurance for customer assets. Coverage is set aside exclusively for every customer in a one-to-one capacity, all with a comprehensive policy covering a range of loss and theft events, including internal collusion. If you are a Bitcoin company, RIA, fund, trust, or family office, make sure to contact Knox to discuss Bitcoin custody and insurance. That website is knoxcustody.com. And finally, Lend at HodlHodl is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. This is a peer-to-peer solution using multi-signature escrow for each deal. So if you have Bitcoin and you don't want to spend, you can keep on hodling and you can pay interest in stablecoins. On the other hand, if you have stablecoins such as USDT, you can create an offer and earn interest by lending that stablecoin on the Lend platform. So with this platform, you set your own terms and you put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rates. Go and check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Back to the show. Great. And so for the users who are less technical or maybe they don't have as much time to go and manually run it, the other cool part is you guys integrated into some of the well-known Raspberry Pi projects as well. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how users can uh, make use of that feature or make use of that? Yeah, I guess um, we just shipped the Mempool V2 uh, you know, Explorer suite on Raspberry Blitz. And uh, that's the first Raspberry Pi platform we're supporting. We're working on the Umbrel App Store integration now and after that probably uh, Ronin Dojo, uh, Start9 Labs, uh, maybe even MyNode. We have to uh, see if we can get working with the BTC Pay Server Docker uh, environment too. But yeah, we, we hope to be on all of the uh, popular Bitcoin full node distributions for Raspberry Pi soon. So it'll be as simple as just you know clicking one button and having that mempool app installed on your Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and as I recall, uh, even I think Minode definitely had V1 on there. I think it does still have that. And so I guess was there any question around like the processing uh, and the you know the capability of the Raspberry Pi nodes to be able to run that on top of Bitcoin and Lightning and whatever other applications they might be using? Yeah, we have to do a lot of tricks. Like we're using Bitcoin Core for a lot of requests, and then we have to use the uh, built-in bundled Electrum server for the address lookups. So it's like we are like. Mich- 
partitioning and matching, matching to get it the, almost the same features as on the mempool.space website. So, but you you get all you get all the basic features like transaction tracking. You can view scripts. You can do all the most of the advanced stuff. It's just the, some of the high performance stuff that doesn't really work. Like you you can't open like an address containing thousands of transactions. Then there's usually like a limit in the Electrum server and stuff. So there is some a few limitations like that, usually uh, related to performance. Yeah, unfortunately, um, the trade off of Raspberry Pi being very inexpensive hardware is that it doesn't have a lot of horsepower. So like for the mempool space website, we have a cluster of several very powerful servers with very fast, you know, non-volatile memory drives and tons and tons of RAM and, and uh, powerful CPUs to index literally everything and keep it in RAM. So when you use the mempool space website, you know, you can view any address, even if it has millions of transactions and it'll just load instantly. Um, but I think the limitation on the Raspberry Pi is like a hundred or a thousand trans transactions per address now. And if it's more than that, um, I think the Raspberry Pi just gives up and says, well, you can look at this on mempool space or another instance, but uh, as a Raspberry Pi, that's all I can really do, right? Yeah, of course. And I think anyone who's doing really hardcore uh, level of transactions all off one address and things, th those kinds of people can go run like a fuller instance themselves. Um, so I think for the typical home user retail level just like a family kind of person or that kind of group of people who are going to just be using a raspberry pi i think that um that makes a lot of sense as well for the typical kind of customer uh, yeah yeah, it's really perfect for a, a home, like a home user because most wallet apps these days, they don't reuse addresses anyway. So on a single Bitcoin address in your wallet, you might only have a few transactions. So Mempool Spaces on a Raspberry Pi is totally sufficient for looking up your own transactions. I mean, there's no way, you know, the average person is going to have millions of transactions on a single address, right? That's the most extreme use case. Yeah, of course, of course. So how would uh, mempool.space differ with some of the other um, kind of older block explorers in the space? I guess the oldest is probably blockchain.info, right? Uh, which is a fully closed source centralized um, explorer slash wallet backend. I guess they were like the first like serious one. So that's why they have a lot of users still. Um, but I mean, they have a lot of, you know, shit coins. They have a lot of airdrops. They have a lot of like advertisements. It's, um, you know, like they were, they, they didn't really add SegWit. Uh, they were supporting like eCash and I think even Ripple or something. I don't know, but they're just not really like the best members of the Bitcoin community, right? Like you can tell it's, it's a typical for-profit company. They're trying to, uh, you know, increase the value of the shareholders uh, wealth and, and things like that. Obviously, uh, you know, the, the contrast to that is like mempool being an open source uh, project, just give away all the code for free and there's no ads, there's no shit coins. It's just pure. It's like, uh, you know, BTC pay in the sense that Pula um, very famously tweeted at BitPay, I'm going to obsolete you. And sure enough, you know, he just hacks a bunch of code together. And now BTC pay is like the de facto way to take Bitcoin payments. Like, why would you use BitPay despite them being this, you know, big company with millions of dollars of VC? Why would you use a company like BitPay that has full KYC and, and all these restrictions when you can just, you know, one click install it on, on BTC Pay on a Raspberry Pi and everything works? And uh, that's what we're trying to do uh, with, with the Mempool project, right? Is kind of obsolete these uh, BitPay style block explorer websites. It, it should, it should, you know, a block explorer should be an app. It's not some, it's not supposed to be like a bank that you have to. To fully trust with all of your data or all of your uh, self-sovereignty, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting that uh, in the earlier days, a lot of things had to be just done by 
some more centralized service. And over the years, as things are maturing, it's becoming easier and easier for the user to become more self-sovereign, right? And so I think it's like a there's a suite of software and projects and you know, hardware as well that are enabling people to become like, you know, the early days, the saying was, Bitcoin, be your own bank. That's really what it was. How, how, do, you, how do you see Mempool fitting in as part of that, call it full stack of apps? Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good name for it, right? The Bitcoin full stack, where on a Raspberry Pi, you have Bitcoin and Lightning and Electrum server and BTC Pay and maybe BISC pretty soon and, and now Mempool tool. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other apps like Coin Mixing or, or all of these... Uh, random applications that are all part of this open source ecosystem. And uh, this full stack allows you to do everything. Like you said, Bitcoin is, your, you know, you can be your own bank. Maybe Lightning is your own Visa or MasterCard payment network. And BTC Pay is like your own payment processor, like Square or something like that. And BISC is to be your own Bitcoin exchange. And now Mempool, you can be your own explorer and your own fee estimation uh, backend, your own everything, right? So so I guess that's the goal is of, of a Bitcoin full stack is to kind of eliminate that dependence on companies and uh, just use open source apps that are self-hosted on your own hardware with your own keys and no KYC or anything to infringe on your personal rights. Yeah. Now, one other thing that can be a bit difficult for people in the space now, maybe not so much for the listeners of this show, they tend to be more, you know, hardcore, tend to be a little bit more either technical or motivated to learn. But it is something we have to think about because Bitcoin Twitter and, you know, SLP listeners are not representative of Bitcoin holders everywhere. And in many cases, you know, the family members are dependent on the technical person in that family running something for them, just like, you know, the technical person in the family might deal with the router for the family and things like that. So I guess maybe... Maybe the idea then is as long as the tooling can be built out in such a way that at least if the technical person in each family or in that group of friends can be proverbial Uncle Jim, as my friend Matt O'Dell would say, right? Yeah, if if you've got one uh, technical person in your household who you can trust to set up a Raspberry Pi, then all the members of that house can easily point their wallets at it. And maybe you want to share some lightning channel liquidity at, to save on on-chain fees and things like this. And you know maybe you don't want to use our mempool explore instance but your uncle jim is running one so you use his because you know he's not going to sell your data to blockchain analysis firm right so it's all about um being able it's all about being able to choose who you trust right if you want to make it build it yourself and run it yourself and trust yourself that's great but if not you should still have the option of who to trust so you don't have to just trust the government or trust the central bank you can trust uncle jim because he's your family you know and that's uh, that's a really cool um ability to capability to have that option Cool. And um, what about, I guess, ongoing, just in terms of keeping the project running, you know, there's obviously got to be some operating costs in terms of servers and, I mean, the time for you guys to develop and you know, maintain these things. What, do you have any thoughts on how the project uh, will be made sustainable for the longer term? Yeah, I mean, we're, now I feel we're uh, finally ready um, after working on this project for a couple of years to to call it like a real serious open source project and uh, apply for some grants. Maybe we'll set up a, a mempool foundation or something. I don't know. It, it, it's uh, it's community funded, right? So we have a sponsors page, um, including like yourself and a number of other very well-respected Bitcoiners have uh, signed up as sponsors where if you donate a million sats, you get our you get your um, your photo on our about page. So we're 
we're totally community funded and uh, developing this project for the community, funded by the community, built by you know the, the Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners kind of thing. So it feels very um, feels very wholesome and heartwarming. Um, the uh, the love from the community, both in terms of just you know the number of users and, and apps integrating with our site, and uh, and as well as seeing like how much uh, donations we're beginning to. So hopefully that'll continue to support us, and uh, we'll, you know we'll be able to you know, not turn into an evil company, but stay as a happy open source project, right? Awesome. And uh, in terms of the future of the project, are there any other uh, things you wanted to highlight in terms of uh, features or things that you're looking to work on? Um, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what's going on, uh, just a refresher of what's happening with the Raspberry Pi support as well. Yeah, we're exp- we're ex- continuously expanding our Raspberry Pi support. So we're going to support Umbrel, MyNode, Ronin Dojo. There's one called Start9 Labs, I think. So we work the embassy. Yeah, yeah. right now. And and I, I think the biggest thing, the biggest new feature that I hope to start working on this year is uh, like a Lightning Explorer thing. So and uh, because that is uh, what most of the Bitcoin ecosystem is moving towards right now. So that feels like the most important next step. And then uh, I don't know yet if it's possible, but it would be great if it's uh, possible to use it on a Raspberry Pi as well. So you get you can support everything. Actually, on that, uh, on the Lightning Node Explorer, I'm curious how feasible that will be because i understand right now in the um ecdsa kind of world it's easier to identify um on-chain lightning channel opens and closes but uh theoretically if we got taproot and most people upgrade to that then it might actually start to become less visible on chain which one is a channel open and which one's a channel close and stuff right exactly so we have a feature now if you go to a transaction we, we flag like this is a two of two multi-sig transaction this is a lightning close for example stuff like that but as transactions are moving to taproot everything like that's going to be invisible so we're not going to be able to like do this connection anymore i think but it's going to be a transition so it's going to work like in coming years probably most probably and uh people are still going to need to use like a lightning explorer tool when they're going to set up their new lightning node they're going out the first question is like okay so who to open my channels to so they need like a tool to provide them which channels need incoming liquidity for example which which nodes have the best routing in the network i think that is a big key thing that we need to focus on up next next up yeah that's really interesting i like that point because i I know um, the Lightning Labs team have this thing called Boz scoring. And so then you might want to try to figure out, um, you know, who you need to connect to in terms of who's a good node to connect to. And theoretically in the Lightning Network, if you want to be a good routing node, then you theoretically want to open channels in the direction that people want pay. So if there's some way that, you know, the user can have like a dashboard that has that information. Now, I mean, that could also maybe be done on Lightning dashboards like RTL or Thunderhub and um, Lit. Uh, but it could potentially also be part of mempool.space as well, right? Yeah, I think it makes sense for the mempool because we are the explorer, right? You search for transactions block and you will also, you also will be able to search for uh, lightning nodes and channels. And we are supporting like all the layer two networks now. So we, we, we will just continue expand and support and see where the ecosystem is going. Follow the- and I, I also like the uh, point that you made earlier with about, well, it's that new feature that shows you which transactions have fallen out of the default mempool because that will then give the user an indicator that they need to do something about this now right they need to try if they can to rbf replace by fee or cpfp on the other side to get the recipient to try to accelerate that transaction or to use some kind of transaction accelerator right 
Yeah, we really wanted, I really want to like improve the user experience because I get so many people that they send me like a link to mempool space and say, hey, my transaction got stuck. What do I do? So we really need this uh, ex- explanation because people don't usually don't get what's going on. So we need to like explain this is how long until it will get confirmed. You can use this and this method like replace by fee. And we also flag like if you go to a transaction, you see like green or yellow or red and like flags like, oh, this transaction support replaced by fee or this one has support SegWit and you put a decent fee. But if everything is like blinking red, you know that something is not uh, something is not good. You need improvement. Like maybe you need to change to a better wallet and stuff like that. So we're like really trying to help people like realize what's going on. What's why is their transaction stuck? And like, oh, you can and like, as a last option, you're like, oh, you can maybe go to this site or do a transaction, pay for a transaction acceleration. Yeah, I think it's the stated goal of our project to basically help the community optimize their on-chain usage and essentially migrate to the upper layers of the, the Bitcoin ecosystem. So it's really cool to, um, like Simon is saying, be able to paste in a TXID, analyze your transaction, have the site suggest ways uh, in which you can improve or optimize your on-chain usage and, and save on fees. And uh, for example, if say there's three ways to uh, improve, uh, to bump a fee, you can RBF it, you can CPFP it, or you can manually accelerate it by, you know, paying, uh, bribing one of the, the mining pools to accelerate it, then, you know, we could have those three buttons there. But if your transaction does not have the capability for RBF set, then maybe one of those buttons would be grayed out with like a little, you know, error message that says, oh, your, your transaction is, uh, you know, not RBF capable. Maybe you should switch to wallet. And then we could actually educate the user with, you know, a comparison of wallets or, or explain at least um, how to do the the other options that are available to them, like CPFP, and and just kind of explain that because uh, we, we get like a million emails from random users like help you know my transaction's not confirming can you please confirm it and uh, I always refer them to Simon who's in charge of confirming the transaction <laughs> but I mean that's the, that's the joke right is that we're just an explorer we don't control anything of the network we're just observing it but um, the users really uh, a lot of the users really think that we're uh, the mempool right which of course doesn't exist <laughs> oh poor users I mean it's 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 funny but also sad like it's also like oh man that's because i can imagine you guys get a ton of emails or uh, people hitting you up saying oh hey please confirm this for me and you're like well i can't actually help you mate well i can sort of help you but i can't really yeah, so that's what we want to improve. We want to actually be able to help these users. Um, you know, maybe we'll partner with some mining pools and have their uh, acceleration features on the site. Maybe we'll have some wallet linked to some wallets where you know it'll teach the users how to RBF it or CPFP it in the future. So that'll be like the uh, I guess the next goals of the, uh, the short term of the site. Yeah, and as an ecosystem, I guess it is gonna now go towards wallets that have RBF, and we might even start defaulting to RBF on where maybe. Historically, that was not always the done thing because back in the older days, people could just go one sat per byte and wait or lowball it and wait um, where now it's more like there really is a chance in this next year or two that we hit that that level of um, block space market such that, you know, you, there is a real risk that your transaction falls out of the default mempool, does not get relayed, does not get mined, etc. Yeah, I think the mempool is going to become this uh, living, breathing uh, beast, right? Where you have a wallet and currently you pick a fee and you broadcast a transaction and you the wallet basically forgets about it at that point. But I, I feel that you're not really going to be able to do that anymore. Now, wallets are probably going to need to constantly monitor where the transaction is in the mempool. And if it falls behind a certain uh, threshold um, based on the user's 
you know, priority or time preference, it might want to RBF that up if it to avoid getting purged or really buried down deep in the mempool. You might want to stay, you know, within the next few projected blocks or something like this. And so, in theory, you could start the transaction out, you know, with a medium fee and uh, within, a, you know, every few minutes, maybe bump it up a little bit, just waiting and, and, uh, seeing how how things go. There's a lot of things that wallets could do to improve their RBF functionality. Actually, I'm curious, while we're here, um, is it, are you only able to RBF it one time? I think you're able to RBF it unlimited times. Yeah, the number is like very high, right? And also, that's a, we ha- actually have a unique feature on the mempool space website that actually detects RBF. So you get like a dialogue showing up, this transaction has been replaced and you are taken to the new one. But I also like to add to like, there's when i watching the mempool all day and stuff, there's I see so many efficiencies going on. And people are using old wallets and they're using exchanges that hasn't like implemented SegWit. And they're making, maybe you're doing a coffee payment on, uh, on chain and stuff. So I mean, there's so much left to optimize. And, and I guess this is the nature of the voluntary system that Bitcoin is. Like nobody can force everyone to just upgrade to the better protocol, or better addresses or something. So usually when people like complain about fees and stuff, they're actually running an old wallet that are just using legacy addresses, which makes the transaction fee actually twice as much as with a what it would have been with a SegWit transaction. And then they are not able to RBF it and then it gets stuck. So that's why we really need, that's why we're really trying to help people <laughs> take the decision and leave their wallet change another wallet and uh, there's a lot of infrastructure out there that hasn't been upgraded so there's a lot of innovation yeah if you're if you're a business that's uh profitable you know making regular bitcoin transactions and you know you're, you're probably busy on scaling up that business whether it be an exchange or anything and you're usually passing on the withdrawal fees to the users anyway so as like this the centralized exchange operator there isn't a huge uh financial interest to you know, implement SegWit or do batching or other optimization until the users are really, really pissed about the fees. And we saw this with BitMEX. I remember once it cost like seventy-five or a hundred dollars to do a withdrawal transaction uh, from BitMEX back in like twenty eighteen or something when the when the mempool was very congested. And uh, you know now we're seeing that they're optimizing things finally. And BISC too. You know BISC is a decentralized network, so the the interests are more aligned with the community. Um, but it was just it was just a big technical challenge to implement SegWit in the trade protocol itself. So it, it's a it's a huge amount of work for these, um, you know, both centralized and decentralized uh, platforms to optimize their transactions. And it is a risk if they screw something up, they might lose some funds. So, you, you know, you really have to work hard on it. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier for them to just say, oh, yeah, we'll just pass the fees on to the user, right? So I can see why uh, the community is always slow to kind of adopt the new uh, technologies or optimize things further. But the financial incentives will only get stronger and stronger and stronger to do that. Say, it cost, you know, BISC uh, $150,000 to pay developers to implement SegWit into the trade protocol. Well, at some point, the users will be, you know, losing more than $150,000 in additional mining fees they could have saved. So at some point, it makes sense to do it, right? Yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, I'm curious if you guys have any other funny observations in terms of what you see happening on the mempool. Is there any other kind of funny off the wall kind of behaviors that you see there? Well, I think it's very interesting and important to <clears throat> to reflect that we see that today we are like in a new bull market and the fees are like one dollar now or even less to make a transaction and we're not congested at all compared to uh, what is was it four years ago when like the bull the end of the bull market 17 went was crazy a backlog of hundreds of thousands of transactions and so now we're, we're already back at those levels but the blockchain isn't at nearly as congested because of all the optimizations that has taken place the past few years so when people complain that 
that we need to raise the block size or something, the fees are too high. I mean, the only thing that can solve that is uh, economic incentives for people to do more, if, use the block space more efficiently, do batching, do segwit, and uh, go do stuff on off-chain. I mean, I see a lot of people sending like just from exchanges. That's like a huge part of the mempool people just sending between maybe the buy on coinbase the same send to finance i mean that transfer could have been occurred off chain instead like using the liquid network which is actually built for interchange settlement i would just remove a huge part of uh, the mempool congestion and the fees will go down again that's why i'm a bit optimistic about fees actually going forward i think we could like 10x the amount of bitcoin users the coming like four years but still like keep a smaller uh, keep a not too high fee level because the economic incentives are there to force people to actually optimize and that's a good thing when the fees go up. yeah that's a really cool point right but even if the even if the fee rate in terms of satoshis per byte that you're paying doesn't go up and it stays the same over the next four years price of bitcoin in us dollars is going to go up probably another 10x right so in fiat prices the bitcoin transaction costs are still going to go way up and i think that's even stronger incentive uh you know to optimize these transactions transactions. And you know, now I'm on the liquid board and, and I hear some uh, interesting stuff like there'll be um, two large centralized exchanges that send a ton of transactions to each other and they could put all of these transactions onto a side chain like liquid. And, you know, th- there's even data to, to, to show this to the exchange operators. But for whatever reason, you know, they're not very interested to implement it because they don't pay the fees and they like the uh, the security of using the Bitcoin blockchain to settle all these things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see who actually takes what actions to optimize what transactions and what gets moved off chain, what stays on chain. The the future is is bright, right? Like all around. We're going to have more tools and more infrastructure and more optimizations coming um, together along with the number going up, incentivizing all of it, right? Yeah, that's a really great point about the fiat value rise because as I understand, uh, in the earlier days, there were people paying fees, literally multiple Bitcoins in fees. Uh, but the fiat value was just so, so much lower back then. Whereas now, the fiat value obviously is much, much higher as we speak today what is it something like 36,000 USD for one Bitcoin um, so the bit in Bitcoin terms fees have come down quite a lot it's just that in fiat terms they've gone up a lot and so that's an interesting point and we should probably anticipate that to continue um, I, I, I one other point I think I'd love to get your thoughts on because you guys are obviously you know so much more involved with the mempool I think we, we potentially we see this kind of seesaw effect of as the fees rise then the engineers go to work and the companies get an incentive to start doing batching and segwit and use lightning and use liquid um and then then maybe the seesaw kind of tips the other way because now they've made it so efficient that you know fees become really cheap again and then uh and then you have to wait for another you know big uptick in adoption before you see the congestion rise again so it's kind of like this back and forth seesaw effect what's your thoughts do you think that's the likely way this goes or do you see it more just like not it's just going to be continued you know on-chain congestion from now on and now you just have to use mempool space and other tools to deal with it. Yeah, I think you're right about the seesaw effect. Um, and, and more realistically, you'll probably, um, you know, up until now, we've seen where the mempool was just not full all the time and you could always get away with doing the minimum one sat per byte. But now I think what we're going to see, and we've already been seeing it like the past month or two, is that even though the going fee rate is only like 10 or 12 sats per V-byte on the weekends now, there's still this huge backlog of low fee transactions, like from maybe like three or four sats to 
eight or 10 sats or something. And just you know, tens of thousands of transactions that are, they're getting churned out on the weekends, but it never really clears out. And so now you're seeing what before there, were, there was no floor where the floor was 1.0 sats per vbyte. Now that floor is variable and it's probably going to rise up to like four or five sats per vbyte. So you will see the seesaw effect, but more importantly and more relevantly to most users is that the 1.0 sat days I think are kind of gone. Maybe now it's more like a four or five sat per vbyte if you don't want to get purged out of the mempool. Yeah, very interesting and insightful comments there. Um, anything else you guys wanted to mention about the project? Well, I guess um, if you if you uh, if you want to know what's going on with your transaction, if it's stuck in the mempool, uh, check it out on mempool space. And if you really like the project, you can self-host it on a Raspberry Pi. Uh, there's even a shop selling Raspberry Pi. Uh, preloaded with uh, Raspberry Blitz on the Fulmo store where you can buy a mempool uh, Raspberry Pi, very uh, low price. Um, if you want to support the project um, or re you know report uh, some issues to our GitHub or some features you'd like to see, you can uh, you can just create an issue on our project page. Or if you want to donate some funds, uh, you can become a sponsor on the mempool space about page. And uh, really just uh, hit us up on Keybase or Twitter whenever you want to, uh, to ask us anything at all. We're very happy to uh, uh, work with the community on, on anything you want to see added to the site. Fantastic. Well, I'll include links in the show notes and uh, I really like the project. So I wish you guys well and uh, thanks for all the great work you're doing. And thank you for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you, Stefan. Find the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks. And I will see you in the Citadels.